Linda Rising. I'm haunted by how great today's show is, and I'm happy to have Batya Ungar-Sargan back with us today. Hello, Batya. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Do you have an enjoyable... Well, today is Halloween. I'm a little <laughs> Halloweened out because I had a lot of Halloween activities to do over this weekend. How about you? Any Halloween-related fun? I can't say I'm a big Halloween person, no. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, uh, hopefully I won't get too scared by all the kids coming uh, knocking on the door tonight. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sounds good. Well, last night it was decided that Lula da Silva will be Brazil's next president after voters delivered a tight victory to the leftist over the right-wing incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro has yet to concede, even though Brazil's electoral court declared Lula the winner with 50.9% of the vote over Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro's 49.1%. And we'll continue to provide coverage of that story as it develops over the week. But first, Paul Pelosi, husband to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, is expected to fully recover from skull, arm, and hand surgery he underwent last Friday after he was allegedly beaten by an intruder with a hammer in the couple's San Francisco home. Yeah, according to officials, police were dispatched to the Pelosi residence around 2.30 a.m. for a priority well-being check uh, when they found a 42-year-old man now identified as David DePape and Paul Pelosi both holding a hammer. According to police, DePape pulled the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi and, quote, violently assaulted him with it. Now, Nancy Pelosi was in Washington, D.C. at the time and not home. However, according to a source briefed on the matter, the suspect was looking for the House Speaker and shouted, where is Nancy, before assaulting her husband. According to Rolling Stone, Pape maintained a personal blog where he dedicated writings to beliefs shared by the QAnon movement, including Holocaust denial, climate change denial, voter fraud, conspiracy theories, Second Amendment absolutism, screeds against groomers and pedos. The blog has since been taken down. The alleged attack on Paul Pelosi has Democrats across the country sounding the alarm bells on threats of violence against elected officials. Congresswoman Debbie, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell told Axios last week, quote, somebody is going to die. So obviously this is a very disturbing incident. I think uh, most people are disturbed by how easy it appears to be that th this man was able to get into, you know, the private residence of the third most powerful political figure in the country. Um, sounds terrifying for Mr. Pelosi, and uh, we wish him a speedy recovery, of course. You know, what do you make, Batya, of the kind of, you know, conversation around this incident? Because it, it seems like you know, there's a lot of, uh, well, well, first of all, we need to know more from an investigatory standpoint for how this all happened, et cetera. You know, we're talking about motive, right? The police are still exploring motive. It looks to me, you know, for, he is a clearly a crazy person. We're finding more of his history of, of kind of crazy behavior, homeless, ha has this blog or, uh, you know, political ramblings, all that. So it's, it's I think it's going to end up being a case where, where, of course, there is a tangible political motive because that's what he's articulating, but also, you know, he's kind of psychotic. And then this political lens is, is how his psychosis is being filtered in, in the same way as like a Jared Lee Lofter or something like that. So I guess I feel a little bit more skeptical of the political angle of this than you are. Um, it seems to me like there's sort of three camps have emerged in the conversation around this. There's the kind of democratic 
political media machine version of the story in which this is a direct result of Republican rhetoric. This is a direct result of Republicans criticizing Nancy Pelosi. Apparently now that's not allowed anymore. You know, that this person Mm -hmm. is a completely normal Republican, mainstream Republican, right, acting out on the orders of mainstream political Republicans, right? That That's kind of the, the liberal left wing version of what happened here. Then there's a kind of middle ground version um, where people are pointing out that this person has a history of, of excessive drug use, possibly mental illness, that the story itself, he seems to be acting in a way that is obviously, you know, at least colored by some kind of mental illness, and that this is an example not of, you know, Republican political rhetoric, but of the kind of mental illness that's Mm -hmm. going untreated in cities across America. And then you have the kind of third camp, the conspiratorial right, that is asking questions based on, you know, some things that actually don't make a lot of sense about the narrative we've been given, but sort of pushing a a conspiracy theory in which, you know, this this was not a mentally ill person, this was not political at all, but it was something else completely. Um, and that and that has been fueled by the changing story coming out of um, um, the San Francisco Police Department in which, you know, there's certain things like first they said there was a third person there. Now they're saying there wasn't a third person there. Things like that that are sort of mm-hmm. changing about the story. So and it seems to me that I mean, I, I feel like the most reasonable explanation, of course, yes, I want to see the, the video of what happened. I'm waiting to hear more. But to me, I think the middle ground seems like the most reasonable explanation like this person is clearly mentally ill. I've heard versions that he said, where's Nancy? And then versions that he said, I'm going to wait for Nancy, which is, of course, very different than, you know, entering with a hammer and saying, where's Nancy? Also, you know, the police did initially say the hammer was Paul Pelosi's. Um, To me, the most salient thing about this story is just the total... Um, different standard for elites, for the rich and for lawmakers than there are for regular Americans. Regular working class Americans, poor Americans, black Americans are routinely victimized Mm -hmm. by incidents exactly like this across their neighborhoods, across cities in America, across rural America. This is happening everywhere. And yet the progressives who are now charging this man with attempted homicide are routinely telling us, no, we need to have more sympathy for the mentally ill. We have to have more sympathy Mm -hmm. for drug addicts. We have to have more sympathy for the homeless. Let them back into the neighborhoods, close Rikers. You know, they're always trying to get this exact kind of person back into the neighborhoods when the people they're victimizing are poor or black or working class. And when it comes to somebody rich or somebody part of the Democratic Party, they're throwing the book at him, attempted homicide for wrestling over 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 a hammer. Now, I don't maybe attempted homicide. Maybe they will be able to indict him on that. Maybe a jury will find that compelling. I don't know. I don't have any of the evidence before me. But the difference in the standard here, I mean, it is impossible to imagine that if a, a mentally ill person attacked a New Yorker on a subway with a hammer, that Alvin Bragg would be uh, would be pursuing attempted homicide. I mean, that is just mm-hmm. impossible to imagine. Mm-hmm. He tried to decriminalize illegal gun possession. So so to me, that is the story right now before we have any more information. It's just the utter hypocrisy from progressive elites when it comes to crime. And we're going to talk more about the conspiracy, conspiratorial angle um, a little bit uh, later in the show uh, when we talk about Elon Musk and what he tweeted about that. So we, yes. uh, we are going to tackle that in a, a later block, um, which, right, I think that is quite, that stuff being quite ridiculous because, we, we you know, you can accept 
when there are obvious explanations jumping out at you, like that this person is insane, that, like you can accept that you know, well, what was he doing there? Well, he's he like read his writing. He's a crazy person, and just and you're exactly right, Botcher, that you know people who live in cities and have seen the urban decay around us and have seen you know tent cities appear and drug addiction and homelessness and psychotic you know people shaking with knives in the street, like people encountering those things. You know, you understand this kind of person and that they're out there and that this is a huge problem that we have to deal with, that people are dealing with, and that the law enforcement and, and local leaders have been totally unable to bring under control. And that it spills out into this broader awareness when you have instances like this where one of those people um, ends up, you know, tangling with, with the rich and powerful. So I think that's I think that's a, a, a really a really good point. And and, and yeah, you know, this is there's been wall to wall liberal mainstream coverage of this right as as a talking about it as like some direct result of the of the extremist rhetoric dangerous re rhetoric um, from uh, from Republicans so it definitely you know them trying to make it be about that rather than about this you know horrible problem we have of homeless drug addicted um, um, site you know deeply suffering from psychosis kinds of individuals um, which you know you and I think it's it's not it's not ethical to just like leave them out there to this to this kind of fate nor is it you know good for for everyone else for the bystanders for the you know people who live in li, who live in areas where with this kind of thing has has taken over so we'll be like we said continue to cover this uh, later in the show and I'll tell you what's on my radar right after this What's on your radar, Robbie? Well, last Thursday, the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions produced a report on the potential origins of COVID-19. The report was produced by the minority oversight staff, in other words, by the Republicans, given that the Democrats currently hold the majority in the Senate. Ranking member Richard Burr of North Carolina wrote that the, quote, ultimate goal with this report is to provide a clearer picture of what we know so far about the origins of SARS-CoV-2 so that we can continue to work together to be better prepared to respond to future public health threats. He also observes that, quote, the lack of transparency and collaboration from government and public health officials in the People's Republic of China with respect to the origins of SARS-CoV-2 prevents reaching a more definitive conclusion. But that the report's inescapable conclusion is that a research-related incident is the most likely explanation for COVID-19. Now, many of the media dismissed the report as a partisan exercise since it was put together by Republicans without Democratic input and advances a theory, the lab leak, that has for some reason become associated with partisan causes. This itself has always been odd because there's nothing really ideologically at stake here. Neither the lab leak nor the wet market theories get Democrats in more hot water than Republicans. But even so, some voices in the mainstream media have clung to the idea that lab leak is a conspiracy theory. And Dr. Fauci has maintained that while either is possible and further investigation is necessary, he thinks a natural zoonotic spillover is most likely. A report from Republican Hill staffers is not going to change Fauci's mind or anyone else's. But the day after the report was published, Vanity Fair and ProPublica released a bombshell news story that reveals in much greater detail exactly what information the Senate Help report was based on. Vanity Fair and ProPublica also point to lab leak as the most likely explanation for COVID-19. And if you read the story, you probably will too. 
Vanity Fair and ProPublica caution that there's no smoking gun here. They do not definitively prove the lab leak explanation. But metaphorically, while there's a great deal of smoke and gunpowder and bullet casings surrounding the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Both the journalists and the congressional staffers examined files and documents produced by scientists at the lab and by oversight officials in the Chinese government. They employed Chinese language speakers with a knack for reading between the lines and translating Communist Party doublespeak into actual English. And what their analysis suggests is that the Wuhan Institute of Virology, located just a stone's throw away from the wet market that hosted the pandemic's first superspreader event, was wildly unsafe. The scientists engaged in risky research there were under constant pressure from the government, the Chinese government, to work harder, to produce more discoveries, and to cut corners if they had to to do so. Evidence emerges that they used substandard safety practices. They did not properly disinfect surfaces. They labored in biosafety suits and masks for far longer than is healthy. Reports note of conditions so unsafe, they are positively inhumane. And then, most troublingly, the communications point to a major biosafety incident in November of 2019, just a few weeks before the cluster of COVID-19 cases at the Wuhan wet market. The documents signal that the Institute faced an actual safety emergency in November 2019, that officials at the highest level of the Chinese government weighed in, and that urgent action was taken in effort to address ongoing safety issues. That's a direct quote from the ProPublica Vanity Fair piece. And here's text from one such dispatch from Wuhan Institute of Virology scientists who write, once you have opened the stored test tubes, it is just as if having opened Pandora's box. These viruses come without a shadow and leave without a trace. Although various preventive and protective measures, it is nevertheless necessary for lab personnel to operate very cautiously to avoid operational errors that give rise to dangers. Every time this has happened, the members of the Zhengdian Lab Party branch have always run to the front line, and they have taken real action to mobilize and motivate other research personnel. Every time this has happened in the past, as if it's happened maybe before. Vanity Fair's translator took this to mean that the scientists knew they had another major problem on their hands and that the government was going to be very angry with them. There was a dispatch from a government official that referenced the highest authority in the land, Chinese President Xi Jinping. While it's not certain that Xi Jinping actually signed off on the message, the fact that his name was being invoked suggests an urgent and non-routine biosafety emergency. The journalists further discuss evidence that China's vaccine timeline seems actually impossible. It just wouldn't have been possible for them to move that quickly unless they had COVID-19's genetic sequence earlier than they have admitted. Vanity Fair and ProPublica spoke to experts who said that the timeline of the Chinese military vaccine development was, quote, unrealistic, if not impossible. If not impossible. So, Bacha, this is a pretty damning um, story. And I, I, you know, I initially saw a lot of you know, people just dismissing the report because it was Republican produced a report. Whatever. It's not going to change anyone's mind. I, cha- I dare everyone needs to go read this story, which you know dances around this this likely indication that these dispatches are indicating these conversations between the laboratory scientists and the Chinese government that something went really wrong in November of 2019, that, and that that wouldn't wasn't surprising given all the past issues with safety, with surfaces not being disinfected properly, concerns about the, the structural integrity of the building and whether the disinfectants were corroding the building, and it's and, and on and on and on. Um, but then November 2019 comes around, and then they have this kind of different um, 
tone to these messages, these communications between the government and the lab. And it, it, it becomes very, I mean, <laughs> I mean, come on. At one point, do people, you know, give up their just utter, and by people, I mean mostly the mainstream media and, you know, people putting up guardrails, Dr. Fauci, et cetera. I mean, look, look at this stuff. Just look at this stuff. Yeah, I think it's funny because The Atlantic had a piece today with the headline, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. Um, and the subheading was, we need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID. But the thing is, like, some people in the dark um, made better decisions than others. And some people were a lot less in the dark than they let on, um, mm -hmm. as you reported. And I, I think that the idea that we should just move on from this, um, that we should just, you know, say, OK, you know what, we're going to call an amnesty. And, and because the thing that happened is that the mainstream media allowed its hatred of Trump. It's like completely irrational hatred of Trump to um, justify the abdication of journalistic responsibilities. I think that's kind of the subheading here. Um, and there's no indication that they've learned the lesson. I mean, that is the lesson here. And they're now pulling out the same exact stuff when it comes to, to DeSantis. I mean, there's just no indication that they learned that lesson, that they, you know, what they did wrong. Explain to me right. in one sentence what you did wrong. They can't. They'll say, oh, we didn't know. But that's not true. You silenced people who did know. You silenced people whose guesses were better. You silenced silenced people who made other decisions that turned out to be the right ones. So I, I think that there's just been no reckoning. And, um, you know, kudos to you for keeping your eye on this story. Or they'll say, as Dr. Fauci did, when you and I asked him, yes. what do you think <laughs> he did wrong? He yeah. said, we should have locked down heart. Knowing what we know now, he, he would have thought that the, the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the masking, the social distancing should have been more militant, not less, more. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay tuned. What's on your radar, Batya? So we're in week three of rapper Ye West's anti-Semitism scandal. And Ye, formerly known as Kanye, just keeps doubling down. Since tweeting his intention to go death con three on Jewish people, Ye went on to blast the Jewish media, Jewish doctors, and, quote, Jewish record labels in subsequent interviews. He's been dropped by Adidas, Balenciaga, The Gap, and J.P. Morgan Chase, with some estimating that his comments about Jews have cost the rapper upwards of $1 billion. But he's not showing any signs of slowing down. Last Friday, he showed reporters a spreadsheet of Jewish media executives at top entertainment corporations. Quote, I didn't realize that it was anti-Semitic to say, hey, you know, I have a Jewish attorney. I have a Jewish record label. I have a Jewish contractor, West told reporters last weekend. He's right. It's not anti-Semitic to say those things. And while a person might need to be an anti-Semite to find the time to compile an Excel spreadsheet with all the names of Jewish executives in the entertainment industry, it's not anti-Semitic to point out the fact that there are a lot of them. As Professor Wilfred Riley pointed out last week in our discussion about crime, facts can't be racist. The problem isn't that Ye pointed out that a lot of executives are Jewish. It's that he believes that their Jewishness is an important factor in their positions, their success, and the influence they Wield. There's a difference between saying the executives I've dealt with have been Jewish, a fact, 
and saying Jewish record labels get paid off to promote genocide against black people, which is something Ye has said. There's a difference between saying that Jewish organizations like the Anti-Defamation League pushed Adidas to break ties with Kanye, a fact, and saying, as Kanye did, that the term Jewish media is a redundant statement suggesting that the media is a coordinated Jewish enterprise that's out to get him. There's a difference between pointing out that your doctor and trainer are Jewish and accusing them of colluding with the media because they and the media are part of the same ethnicity as Ye did. These may seem like small distinctions, but they really aren't. They're the, they are the difference between the truth, which can never be racist, and the kind of conspiratorial thinking that led to the biggest atrocities in human history. It's never racist to point out facts. The definition of racism is judging someone's actions based on a prejudice about their race, which is the only way that Ye is capable of talking about Jews these days. By contrast, I want to highlight another video that's been circling in which Charlemagne the God, host of The Breakfast Club, was interviewed on this very topic nine years ago. Now, Charlemagne was pretty scathing in his criticism of Ye's comments last week, asking repeatedly, you know, quote, how a black man wakes up and decides to become a Nazi in response to Ye's anti-Semitic comments and the T-shirt he wore at Paris Fashion Week, which read White Lives Matter, which actually started the whole downward spiral. So the older video of Charlemagne was circulating on Twitter as, you know, alleged evidence of hypocrisy. But I would argue that it's proof of the opposite. The video of Charlemagne shows someone who hasn't succumbed to anti-Semitic sentiments struggling with facts that he's worried might seem anti-Semitic. So let's take a look at that video. Black people, we don't have no power. No matter what we do, we can all click up. We don't have no organization that has holds anyway. And NAACP don't hold no way. We don't have no organization that holds no weight. You can't speak bad about a Jewish person because they have organizations and they're a close-knit group of people in power who will bring you down. Same thing with gays. You can't say nothing bad about gays because they move as a unit. Black people don't have that. I love Jewish people, but they're powerful. I don't want them to misconstrue anything I'm saying or take anything I'm saying the wrong way. So I would much rather not even have this conversation. I have a lot of great Jewish people in my corner. I have a Jewish. I have a Jewish conglomerate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know why there's not a lot of Jewish rappers? Because there's Jewish owners and Jewish CEOs. They run these labels. <laughs> They're the bosses. That's why. So Charlemagne starts by making the claim that black people don't have any power, any organization that really holds weight. He then goes on to say that because Jews and gay people have organizations that have power, if you say something bad about them as a group, those organizations will bring you down. In other words, his point is that black people have no power, not that Jews or gays have too much. What these groups have per Charlemagne is a sense of responsibility toward each other, coupled with a few organizations that have power, and that makes all the difference. Now, it doesn't matter if you agree with him or not. In the complete video, uh, the interviewer pushes back against Charlemagne wisely, I think, to say that, of course, there are repercussions if you say racist things against black people. And to be clear, I think Charlemagne is wrong about that difference, but that doesn't make him racist. The opposite. His comments seem to suggest that he believes Jewish and gay Americans have figured out how to protect themselves in a way that he envies. Charlemagne then goes on to make an argument about why there aren't any Jewish rappers, which he argues can be explained by the fact that there are Jewish CEOs who run the labels. And this is where he comes closest to the point that I think Kanye has been making. But here's the difference. Charlemagne looked at the facts as he saw them, that he knows a lot of black rappers, a lot of Jewish entertainment executives, 
and few black executives and probably no Jewish rappers. And he extrapolated from that, that being hard up, let's say, is what makes you a rapper. And you don't make that kind of music when you can access the entertainment industry from the business end. That's that's what the argument he's making seems to be to me. Charlemagne looked at the same facts as Ye, but he knew it couldn't be something related to their ethnicity that made Jewish executives that he knows more likely to be executives. Ye looked at those facts and decided it couldn't be anything else but their Jewishness, just like he does in this clip. The thing about the red hat that drove me to a point of exhaustion, which was misdiagnosed by a, I'm not going to say what race, what people, uh, doctor and what hospital and what media went to. We know I can't say that. It was a Jewish doctor. Sorry. And therein lies the difference. What makes what Kanye keeps saying racist is the implication that somehow it is their Jewishness that makes Jews more likely to be, you know, harming him as doctors, as hospital owners or as entertainment executives, and that they use that Jewish essence to wield power that harms the black community. This is, of course, racist nonsense. If being an entertainment executive was the birthright of every Jew, there would be a lot fewer Jewish teachers and shopkeepers and social workers. If Ye thinks that any random Jew can become a Hollywood executive, I have a bridge I'd like to sell him. The reason so many executives are Jewish is not because they're Jewish, but because people, all people in power, tend to help those in their immediate networks. In fact, Kanye got a bit closer to the truth in another video. Watch. I want my people to rise up like the Jewish people. I'm a competitor. And I'm jealous of the Jewish community. I'm jealous of the fact of how they don't abort their babies. I'm jealous of the fact of how they stay with their wives. I'm jealous of the fact of how they do business together. I'm jealous of the fact of how they read their contracts and understand their contracts. I'm jealous of the fact. I'm jealous of the way uh, Jewish people do business. I actually find that video almost unbearable to watch because Ye's pain is so apparent. And he's right on some issues that Jews have fewer abortions and fewer single parent homes, largely due to socioeconomic factors. Jews are more likely than the average American to have a college degree, so they're more likely to have all the benefits that come with that. He's also right that they do business together the way all groups tend to, favoring intra-group relationships. As to understanding their contracts better, I'm afraid that, like the space lasers, those don't come in the Jewish starter pack, at least in my own personal experience. Um, but jealousy is an extremely painful emotion, and I'm not surprised that Ye tried to escape it with a convenient conspiracy theory that Jews are trying to keep him down. And I hope someone manages to explain to him where he got it wrong. Unfortunately, his comments seem to have unleashed a new meme on the Nazi right with, you know, Kanye is right about the Jews showing up on posters over an LA highway and most recently at sports games. Still, I'm glad he's back on Twitter. <laughs> While no one is entitled to a brand ambassadorship worth a billion dollars, hate speech is protected speech, and it's not like he even said an anti-Semitic slur. The debate over his comments belongs in the public sphere. I'm sure you agree with me about that, Robbie. Uh, you know, were, were you happy to see that that Kanye was was back on Twitter with uh, Elon Musk taking the reins? Well, I, I think it was 
fine, I guess, to sanction him over the initial um, tweets, which were anti-Semitic, although I'm not sure they were necessarily more vile than anything I see on Twitter all the time. I mean, that, from a, I mean, this isn't mostly a kind of social media moderation radar that you just did, but you know, it's kind of the disparity in how things are treated that I think makes people most upset. Well, why is this piece of content up when this is not, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, to, your, you know, to your broader points, um, yeah, a lot of uh, really interesting stuff you get into there, uh, the tension between, you know, the, the kind of, the, the, the fact, so uncomfortable at times, that there are, you know, tr- you can make generalizations about groups of people that are, that are true more often than not. That's how generaliz- generalizations form often among some true characteristics of groups. They might be, uh, they might be based in, in, Genetic characteristics, more often than not, they're based in some right, kind of some kind of socioeconomic reality because of how people from the group have been handled historically or with the with treatment they've faced historically. But that those generalizations, you know, break down then so so often because uh, individuals are are different and defy stereotypes and generaliz- generalizations all the time. Just like you said that right now, even though there might disproportionately be um, Jewish influence in the high levels of the entertainment industry, there are also tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of Jewish people who are work as teachers or any other profession because these things never, the generalizations never hold up uh, or don't hold up as often when you start looking at you know, the, in, the vast in individual differences between groups that become more pronounced over time as groups intermingle and as borders mean less, as, as people intermarry, as, as, as the cultural kind of hegemony ch- you know, ch- erodes what, uh, what the differences between you know, long ago groups are. So, uh, so in, in some ways, Kanye's talking about it in like a, a very, like the way things used to be a sort of way about like, well, the, these are Jewish interests and these are black interests and these are white interests and these are Asian interests. And like, that's not, you know, that's just not like where we're going because there becomes too many differences, too many individuals who defy those stereotypes, which I, I think is a good thing. But yeah, li- like you, uh, you know, he, he every now and then dances around an interesting point or some, some true observation. Um, I just think he's not, I'm sorry, I just think he's not very informed and he you know he's a little bit he's talked about his mental health struggles and it was so wrong so foolish of uh, of anyone but especially co- of conservatives who have who should not or should know better than to elevate celebrities to say oh yeah let's listen to this guy this is our this is our this is our conservative celebrity we want to put on a pedestal yeah and i also have to say um uh, <laughs> There's a big difference between saying all lives matter and saying white lives matter. And I think that that was really lost in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, I think conservatives rushed to embrace him because they felt that the kind of, you know, in light of the black lives matter, that the, the that they felt that kind of, you know, that there's a reasonable argument, I think, to be made that um, identity politics has led us, you know, at this stage down a divisive path. And we want to reclaim that, you know, the Dr. King right. vision. And I could see how people were, you know, were sort of, you know, trying to embrace the all lives matter in that light. But saying white lives matter to me anyway, it really does sort of smack of uh, white specifically. (laughs) I think I think it's a it can be a callous and flippant response to a problem that that does not just affect black people. Because as I point out, issues in the criminal justice system and with policing are not just black 
people issues. They, they can affect anyone. So I have my criticisms of how the Black Lives Matter movement has really focused what ought to be a, a police accountability, citizens demanding accountability for their police, and, and really focus it in such a racial direction that it became, I think, off-putting for a lot of people. So I think that was a tactical mistake. But yes, I, I don't, the, the, the correction to that was not to go right the other way. And then it just, it just comes off, it comes off as very heartless and that then you're not actually interested in holding the police accountable at all if you respond that way. So, uh, well, that was excellent, Bacha. Really appreciate it. And we'll have more rising right after this. Elon Musk has declared the bird freed after his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter closed last week. In his first major move as majority owner, Musk cleaned house and fired several top executives, including CEO Parag Agrawal and CFO Ned Siegel. Musk had previously accused the suits of lying to him during acquisition negotiations. Uh, Musk tweeted on Friday that long-expected account reinstatements and moderation policy changes will not take place until a, quote, content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints convenes. Now, those who stand to regain access to their Twitter accounts include former President Donald Trump, rapper Ye, Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe, and InfoWars host Alex Jones. And new late last night, The Verge reports that Musk plans to bring paid verification to Twitter, potentially telling his new employees they must introduce it to the platform by November 7th or be fired. The revamped Twitter blue will cost $20 and current blue checks will have 90 days to pay up before losing their verification. Very interesting. You know, I was seeing a lot of uh, people on Twitter, a lot of conservatives say, you know, celebrate, hey, this is great. Everything is so much better already on Twitter. And I'm like, but Elon Musk said he has not made any changes yet. <laughs> so I think this is slightly delusional. Like everyone's imagining that it's much better. I, I don't know that that like nothing has been changed, um, according to Elon Musk. Nothing like like there have not been any changes in the last 48 or 72 hours or however long it's been. But uh, people are the vibes. The vibes are certainly certainly good right now. <laughs> Um, I don't know. So in, in addition to the fired top executives, um, one of them, another one who was the head of uh, Twitter uh, safety, who was very involved in the decisions, um, this is met many of the kind of moderation decisions that have irked conservatives, including the Trump decision, I think also the Hunter Biden laptop decision, et cetera. So she has exited as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? A new day, a new day for Twitter? I mean, th here's my problem with this and with a lot of Elon Musk's stories is like he does a lot of stuff that make me really want to root for him. And then the big elephant in the room shows up and I'm reminded again of the huge China problem. So when it comes to content moderation, the idea of having a council or having options where people can choose what kind of moderation they want, that's brilliant and genius and exactly the kind of thing that the blue checks that we hate would totally object to, right? Because they want the content moderation to be just Democratic Party line platform, right? So of course they hate that. I think that's a great idea. The idea of charging for a blue check is so genius because 
it's like it, the mm-hmm. the total democratization of <laughs> prestige, which is why the blue checks are going totally nuts. I mean, I obviously I don't think you would I would never pay for it, but the idea that you know your status will be determined by you know what is it two hundred and forty dollars a year, which is something that anybody could ra- you know raise if it matters enough to them, and that it will no longer be a prestige conferred upon you by you know social right. media like whatever. Like that's great, and it's, it's great because it's going to make the people that we the blue the the, the right. Twitterati so butthurt. But then I'm reminded again of his relationship with China, of the fact that he built a showroom for Tesla in Xinjiang, where the concentration camps full of Uyghurs are. That you know he's never said no to the Chinese Communist Party, and he now owns single-handedly, totally under his control, the public square in America. And if that is terrible, that it is terrible that somebody who is completely under the sway of the CCP now owns our public square. Like it happens to be that like, yeah, I, you know, what, what he does here to troll the libs in America, that kind of stuff appeals to me. But that is just window dressing on a huge problem mm-hmm. right now. I mean, do you think I'm going to be able to tweet at him the way I did the other day? Like, I wonder how the Uyghurs feel about, you know, the bird being free, all this freedom. I don't know that I'm going to be able to tweet that yeah. in, 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 you know, in six months without being shadow banned. Right. And so it's, it's, you know, I think it's very complicated. Well, well much like, yeah, much like conservatives elated that everything's better. They, then the counterpart to that was all the liberals saying, no, it is over. It's or, 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 or some people, right. you know, tweeting criticisms of Elon and his company saying, how much longer am I going to be able to do this? I'm sure I'm sure they're coming for me. I can hear them, you know, banging down my door as we speak to haul me away. I'm like, again, nothing has changed yet in terms of right. the paying for blue check verification. So I would happily pay for it if in addition to the check, it conferred any benefit like that, like you're guaranteed not to have your your uh, reach reduced, or or your, the algorithm is even going to favor you. If I if my tweets had the reach they had in like the golden period from like I don't know 2015 to 2020, yeah, I would definitely pay for that. If it's just mm-hmm. literally for the blue check, but I am quietly on some list. I mean, so Brianna, our, our co-host, was tweeting about. Um, how she feels she's been limited by by Twitter and like can't pick up net followers. A lot of other people talking about that. That's the kind of stuff I hope Elon tells us more about when he learns more about it. What you know, shadow banning? Like I don't know because a lot of people will say, "Oh, I'm shadow banned. No one sees my tweets." And like, well, it could just be sorry, you don't have popularity anymore. Um, <laughs> but or it could be in some cases nefarious. It could be some cases genuine. Some cases nefarious. I do want to learn more about that process, and I think that's the best case for Elon's takeover is making some of that um, more transparent. But I, I do share your concerns, certainly, about, uh, about China. And, and, you know, so, and he's also going to find out that some of these moderation questions, you know, it's easy to criticize them from the other side. But, you know, does bringing Alex Jones back, that might actually cause real like liability. He might have a, a fiscal um, uh, uh, responsibility to the company not to do that because it, it could get the whole company liable for the, you know this man for the billion you know, billions he's supposed to pay out in in that sense. So it, it will be interesting to see him you know try to weigh those problems in terms of having a a committee to decide these things. I mean, Twitter did have an advisory committee on trust and safety issues. It was just, but it was not ideologically diverse. It was very right. progressive stacked. Right. Uh, Facebook has this Supreme Court on uh, Facebook that is genuinely more ideologically diverse um, than uh, than Twitter's. Now, it only weighs in in cases where content was banned 
and then it decides whether to, to reinstate it. It actually handles a lot of um, a, a lot of cases in in Africa and in Southeast Asia where where the, where the content was banned because it was like you know, encouraging violence or like racial violence against a minority racial group. Uh, and then, and then they, Facebook took it down. And then there has there's like a legitimate dispute over is that speech? Are they are these accusations of violence, like uh, accusations that some some racial group in Africa or Asia is causing violence against another group? But is that inciting a mob or is, is that actually true? Because there are there's racial violence in these parts of the world. So it's, it's interesting cases. So that that group has been, I think, doing probably better work than what uh, than what uh, Twitter has been doing in the past. So a genuinely ideologically diverse board will probably help. But at the end of the day, these are still very hard cases to make. And we, you need more of a, a unified, well, like, here's the kind of thing, here's the moderation we do. Or, like you just alluded to, what I prefer, devolving it to users to say, well, these are my moderation standards. You know, I want, I want to see content akin to what the most you know, paranoid, misinformation-averse liberal wants, OK, then you can put on those settings. If you're someone right. who says, no, I can be trusted with independent information, I don't care if occasional really edgy, provocative, hateful stuff comes across my feed, then that's the standards I go with. Letting users decide will, I think, depoliticize some of this, or having it, have it be less top-down and more just user-based. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, you know, when you put into your GPS, you know, the destination and it gives you, you know, three options, four options based on how long it takes, based on how many tolls there are. Right. I mean, it's such a simple thing, it seems to me to say what you choose, the level of moderation you want, you choose the ideological bent that you want to see and you put it back in their hands or even to. But I, I think, you know, yeah, Facebook, you can tell immediately that its advisory board is more diverse because, you know, every single day that out of the top 10 stories trending on Facebook, like nine of them, eight of them are Ben Shapiro, right? You could never <laughs> see something like t- that equivalent, right, on, on Twitter. So I, I, I think that they are doing something better. And, and I agree with you. It's very easy to criticize content moderation from the outside. It's, I think probably both of us are very sympathetic to the fact that, you know, reasonable conservatives, reasonable Republicans often get booted for saying things that, you know, or, you know, for COVID things, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, sure. that deserve to be suspicious, we deserve for us to be suspicious of. Um, and at the same time, you know, there is a difference between being on Twitter and being on Parler, you know, as a, you know, certainly minorities have experienced this. I know a lot of Jewish people won't go on Parler because there's no moderation and you just end up being exposed to a lot more hate, hate stuff, you know, so it's, it is, it's a difficult task. And um, I I just worry that what we're going to see with Twitter is it's going to become a version of TikTok that, that China essentially has so much sway over what gets said and what doesn't and the reach of what is said. It's so hard to imagine this being the line that Elon Musk suddenly develops a spine when it comes to yeah. China. That, that's the thing that really worries me. Well, Parler has frustratingly it, um, earned my eternal enmity after accidentally using uh, not blind carbon copy. They sent out a press release to, uh, I, I explained this to Radar the other week. I don't think you were on with us. They sent out a press release about the, uh, Kanye acquiring the company to a bunch of journalists, uh, like a long email list, and they didn't put in blind carbon copy, so everyone <gasps> got everyone's email addresses. So now I've been like besieged oh, with spam. I've like been added oh, to a million no. right-wing <laughs> newsletters that I never would have signed up for. And uh, yeah, so Parler made, a, made an enemy here. Oh, well. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but not funny at all. Uh, but it's, it's exactly those kinds of like weird security lapses that I think make 
people, even people like you and I who want to support um, you know, free speech, alternative perspectives, you still got to be have basic competence if you're building like a free speech alternative site. You have to like have competence, like do better, please. Um, as some and some of these platforms are doing better, like Substack, like uh, Rumble, etc. There, there are healthy, you know, free speech platform uh, alternative uh, uh, platforms succeeding. Um, I don't know if Parler is one of them, but uh, yeah. And, I ju- and one more point is that. Um, I think uh, Elon Musk has severely overestimated Twitter's ability to grow. To me, it reads as an elite platform where elites police elites. And I think he thinks he can turn it into something that's much more mainstream. And I just don't see that. I mean, the people who enjoy being on there are the people who enjoy like shaming the people who are closest to them socioeconomically and professionally and trying to climb the professional ladder in politics or in the media. Um, you know, it, it, of course, there are like, you know, sub Twitter, you know, there's like, you know, mm-hmm. trucking Twitter. And then there's, you know, um, um, what's it called? Mushing Twitter for people who um, ride those sleighs with dogs. You know, every every subgroup has its Twitter. But by and large, it seems to me to be a place where elites congregate. And the idea that you could turn that into something much more mainstream with more mainstream appeal, I, I just feel very suspicious of that. I, that doesn't seem likely to me at all. Yeah, I agree. More rising right after this. Stay with us. On Friday, Pennsylvania Senate candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz's campaign aired last Tuesday's Pennsylvania Senate debate with opponent John Fetterman on a digital billboard outside of a fundraiser attended by President Biden, further fanning the flames in an already contentious contest. Fetterman's performance in the debate was rocky following concerns about his health amidst his recovery from a stroke. Following the less-than-stellar debate performance, Fetterman's campaign and other Democrats have focused on Dr. Oz's controversial comments on abortion being between a woman, her doctor, and a lawmaker. In the 24 hours following the debate, Fetterman's campaign raised over $2 million. Meanwhile, Latino voters in Pennsylvania are still leaning Democrat, but locally and nationally, support for the party continues to decline. According to a recent NBC News Telemundo poll, 38% of polled Latinos in Pennsylvania favor Republican stances on the economy compared to 34% who support Democrats. For most other issues, however, the polled voters did side with policies enacted by Democrats. Joining us to discuss is the CEO of the U.S. Hispanic Business Council, Javier Palomares. Welcome, Javier. Morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you with us. And you hosted a separate town halls uh, with the candidates, Fetterman and Oz, about uh, economic issues and how they impact the Latino community. Why don't you tell us more about how those events went? Well, you know, as, as you look at the midterms, the Hispanic vote, I think, is going to be a deciding factor in states like Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and certainly Pennsylvania. Um, You know, our discussion with both candidates was centered around kind of the meat and potato issues that all Americans are dealing with, the economy, jobs, um, uh, tech regulation, energy, specifically in the state of of Pennsylvania. Um, And, you know, we found both conversations to be very illuminating. Uh, We heard things we weren't expecting to hear from both of these candidates. Uh, they were both very engaging, um, and uh, you know the the United States Hispanic Business Council advocates on behalf of the 4.8 million Hispanic-owned firms in this country that collectively contribute over 800 billion dollars to the American economy. 
in the state of Pennsylvania, um, we polled some 4,000, a little over 4,000 Hispanic business owners, got some questions from them, and those were the questions we posed of the two candidates. So, so Fetterman, obviously, this was coming off the heels of a debate in which Fetterman um, was widely believed to have done very poorly. You, you could see it just from a, how he was able to articulate. It, it was obvious that his recovery from his stroke you know, is affecting his ability to communicate. A lot of painful, awkward moments in that debate. Um, how did he handle things when he talked with you? And, and why don't you share, you were telling us before we started filming, uh, what he said about fracking in particular. Uh, you know, first of all, in terms of his condition, you know, I'll tell you that in the, in the conversation before and after, and certainly during the town hall, he was funny, he was lucid. Um, you know, you could still see some traces, but uh, he went into detail on a lot of the issues that we talked about. Um, I pressed him specifically on his position on, you know, um, a traditional energy uh, on oil uh, and gas on fracking. And I was taken by his willingness to embrace fracking. He literally, I asked him if elected uh, Lieutenant Governor, would you support fracking? And he literally said, absolutely. Um, he went on to, to talk a bit more about, hey, listen, within certain confines, which anybody would have done. But I was taken by the fact that, uh, you know, he, he illustrated to me and, and said to me, listen, uh, if elected, you know, I, I need to do the will of the people. My job is to is to lead and govern and regulate uh, on behalf of the people who put me in this job. And I'm hearing from them that energy is incredibly important to the state of Pennsylvania. I'm, I don't think enough Americans recognize that Pennsylvania ranks second only after Texas in terms of you know the capture of natural gas and and uh, oil and gas exploration. So as Pennsylvania goes, certainly so, so does the Northeastern uh, quadrant of the United States and maybe many other states in the US. Yeah, I think it's so important that we're hearing from you about Fetterman's performance because to me it always seemed very likely that he ha had good days and bad days as anybody recovering from a traumatic episode has and that you know sometimes he showed up better than others and so it's great to hear from you that you had this sort of firsthand experience of him on a better day you know the narrative from the left that there's no problems and the narrative from the right that he's totally incapable of serving seem both to be wrong um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you think the Democrats are in so much trouble uh, with Hispanic voters um, you know which side do you see as being better for uh, businesses for Hispanic businesses um, talk to us about that a little bit Batia, I got to begin by by saying that that you know I, I hate it because I'm a Democrat, lifelong Democrat. They'll probably bury me a Democrat. Um, but the reality of it is, um, in times like these, um, I'll begin first with Hispanic businesses, Hispanic business owners. You know, we're dealing with a witch's brew of challenges. You've got you know rising interest rates. You've got inflation that's gone through the roof. Energy costs have gone absolutely; they skyrocketed and. And, and as energy goes, so, so, so does everything else, distribution, warehousing, transportation, cosmetics, asphalt, uh, farming fertilizer. I mean, the list goes on. Everything goes up when energy goes up. Uh, we're looking at a recession uh, looming. Um, we've got the holidays coming and we're still struggling, uh, frankly, with supply chain challenges. So you've got all of that going on in, 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 in an election year. You've got Hispanic businesses disproportionately suffering from those challenges. 
And so, um, you know, no, no one should be surprised that you're seeing an exodus of Hispanics leaving the Democratic Party and, and looking to the Republican Party for hopefully some solutions. In a broader context, if you widen the lens and you look at the Hispanic population overall, I mean, Hispanics represented 53% of the overall growth of the nation. The total growth of the population of the United States, um, 53% of it came from the Hispanic community alone. As we stand today, there are more Hispanics in this nation than there are African Americans and Asians combined. But the Democratic Party has done uh, woefully, woefully poorly in terms of recognizing that, speaking to that, uh, staying in contact and learning what the real issues are, um, you know, with the Hispanic community. At times like these, as I said, we worry about the meat and potatoes issues like inflation and mortgage rates and jobs and the economy. And uh, historically, the Republican Party has done a better job of focusing on those issues. So it's very natural that you would see our community start to look to Republicans for the solutions they need. Hmm. Well, Javier, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Have a great day. We'll have more Rising right after this. I want to turn to next month's election. You've referred to the midterm election as a choice rather than a referendum. That's right. Given record inflation, why should voters choose Democrats? This is not record inflation anymore. I'm bringing it down. Look what we inherited. Despite those claims from President Biden that voters should vote blue because of his handling of inflation, a new USA Today Suffolk generic ballot poll shows that 49% of voters leaning Republican and only 45% leaning Democrat ahead of the midterms. In July, the same poll showed Democrats ahead 44% to 40%. Joining us now to discuss is founder of Autonomy Strategies, Christian Ramos, and host of A Fresh Perspective and contributor to Red State and Liberty Nation, Jeff Charles. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. So, Charles, let's start. Uh, Jeff, let's start with you. Um, um, so the new polling is showing that 21 uh, percent of black voters are potentially getting ready to vote Republican. Historic numbers, a historic shift. We're seeing that also among uh, Hispanic voters. Um, is that related to inflation? Talk us through what's motivating these shifts. I think there are likely a lot of contributing factors, Batia, but I do believe that inflation in the economy is the number one issue. All the all the polling seems to suggest that. And as people are still paying more money to, to go grocery shopping, paying more at the pump, this is going to continue to be an issue. Um, but there are other issues as well. Uh, crime, education, immigration. So all of these things are figuring into the equation and people are getting the general sense that Democrats have failed to handle these issues while they've had control of the legislature and the White House. Now, Christian, I saw some writing on a whiteboard behind your head, so I want you to tell us all about what's going on there. I love it. I love it. Let's start with the Latino vote, right? In 2020, our number was plus 21 for Democrats. If you look at four polls that are have large sample size of Latinos that are in Spanish and in English. You have a plus 25 from Pew, from the New York Times, you have plus 24, from NBC Telemundo plus 21, and the Washington Post plus 27. So we are at or above where we were for the 2020 Latino vote. So we're, we're, doing, we're doing pretty good. We're doing pretty okay. And we're going to build on that. And how we're going to build on that? 
Listen, repeat after me, everybody. Republicans break the economy, Democrats fix it. We make it better. <laughs> the wealth of lower income households grew faster than higher income ones did for the first time in modern history. Every income level are wealthier today. The net wealth of the bottom 20% of US households jumped $1.23 trillion, translating into an average of roughly 43,000 per household after inflation. More than 10 million unemployed Americans found jobs. The fast rising employment rate produced a record 14.9% surge in overall wage and salary income. We have done an incredible job as stewards of this economy that was broken completely by Republicans and Donald Trump. And well, let's it, was, be clear. It, was, it was broken by COVID. It was broken under Republican leadership because COVID hit and we've, you know, put some things back together. So there are improvements. Well, Is that you think you can fairly attribute that to a difference in policies among Republicans and Democrats? Let me let me speak to that, because this is a very important point you're raising. Under Donald Trump, Latino unemployment was 18.8%. And I want to explain why it was 18.8%. There was no vaccine. There was no help to Latino businesses. So people either had to choose, I go to work or I lose my job. And if I go to work, I might get COVID and die. Under Joe Biden, you got vaccines, you got investment in workers, and our community is thriving now, right? They are working again. They are creating small businesses at the fastest rate in history. Do they know that we've, it was Democrats that provided all of those, you know, uh, services to them? No, I don't think they do. Democrats have to make that case. That's the case we've got to make over the next. Oh, OK. All right. I got to push back on a few things you just said. I mean, first of all, I mean, Operation Warp Speed, you know, that we had the vaccines as fast as we did. Thanks to Donald Trump. The, the side that was closing down small businesses was 100 percent liberal authorities and Democrat led places, whereas, you know, small businesses were able to stay open in Republican led areas. But 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 Jeff, I want to let you jump in here. I don't want to monopolize. I'm sure that you, you want to push back against some of those things as well. <laughs> Well, yeah, you basically took the words out of my mouth. The vaccines were developed under Trump. Biden just took what he got and ran with it. And yes, they were the ones responsible for shutting down small businesses, large businesses, schools. That was Demo that, that was mostly Democrats. And, you know, the numbers might look good if you, if, when, you, when, when you're talking about people's incomes going up. Obviously, they're not going up enough because st we're still cr cr crying about this record level inflation, gas prices, all of that other stuff. Black voters in particular have indicated in several polls that the, the, these inflation rates are devastating them financially. So the idea that this is just some a wonderful economy that we're in right now, I don't think you can sell that to the average voter who is paying a lot more for the goods that they normally get. Well, that same USA Today polling showed that 40 percent of Hispanic and 21 percent of black respondents nationally are backing the Republican candidate come Election Day. Um, Jeff, actually, let's you know, get your take on that. Do you think voters of color um, are going to abandon Democrats this cycle? I think a lot of uh, black and Latino voters are either going to stay home or they're going to vote Democrat. Now, Democrats will still get most of those votes. But you take Stacey Abrams, for instance. She has 79 percent black support, 75 percent among black men. That sounds good. But until you consider the fact that she should be getting over 90 percent of the black vote, because that's what Democratic candidates typically get. You've got Governor Ron DeSantis winning over Hispanics in, in Miami-Dade County. You've got people down here in Texas 
who are winning over Hispanic voters. And, and the same thing is happening with black voters in Georgia and other states as well. So I think that we're starting to possibly see a sea change. But I think this is more a result of the Democratic Party uh, losing voters more than Republican voters picking them up. Although there are people making a lot of good efforts. If they keep it up, then uh, Democrats are going to be in a lot of trouble because they're going to be losing more of their most uh, valuable voting blocks. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to speak to this a little bit because I think what he's saying is important. Let's look at the Senate map, right? If, if Democrats win in Arizona, if they win in Nevada, if they win in Colorado, if they win Georgia and Pennsylvania, we will keep the Senate, okay? If we keep the Senate, it will be because of Latinos in the Southwest, right? Mexican-Americans in, in Colorado, Nevada, and Arizona. And if we win Georgia and Pennsylvania, it'll be because of Latino and black voters, okay? If we keep the Senate this cycle, that is historic. That has never happened to a first-time president in a midterm cycle, right? So I don't, I don't understand, like, well, those races are all competitive in those states right now. It is literally going to come down to the smallest of margins, and I predict it will be Latinos in the Southwest and Black and Latino voters in Georgia and Pennsylvania who are putting us over the top. Hmm. Well, so, thank so you both. Christian, Go ahead, Bacha. I was just going to say, Christian, I, I have seen polls and interview after interview after interview of Hispanics saying, you know, the Democratic Party has abandoned us. The Democratic Party stereotypes us. They think all we care about is immigration. What we care about is what everybody cares about, which is the economy and crime. Like, I just keep seeing a wealth of information that these are important issues to Hispanic voters and that they increasingly see the Republican Party as doing better on that front. Is there nothing that you could say the Democrats could be doing better for Hispanic voters on? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up crime, because when you ask Latino voters about crime, you know what they actually say that they're upset about? It's gun safety. And you know why they're upset about gun safety? Because Republicans refuse to act on this stuff, because they allow anybody who wants to get a gun to have a gun. And then these people turn around and they shoot up schools trying to kill people of color. They show up and shoot up Walmarts, right? In El Paso, Texas, where I was born. Latinos do not feel safe when just anyone can run around and get a gun and shoot us up at, at schools. And on the economy, listen, one in four small businesses in this country are started by Latinos today, okay? Four out of five Latino small businesses during Trump's administration, they couldn't get help during COVID. They felt extreme, extreme distress because there was nothing going on at that time. If anyone opened the economy, it was Democrats. The, all, of the, all of the business closing that you guys just talked about happened under Trump. All of those businesses closed during the Trump bungling of the COVID response. I will give you credit for the vaccines, but let's be clear, DeSantis, Abbott, and the other GOP governors all said, don't take the vaccine. Don't get your kids vaccinated. How does that help businesses stay open if everyone is sick and not vaccinated? Explain that to me. Is that a good business model to not vaccinate your employees? I don't know if they said don't. Well, maybe they said don't vaccinate uh, kids. I don't think they said don't take the vaccine in general. Um, go ahead, Jeff. 
Yeah, the uh, Abbott DeSantis did not say don't take the vaccine in general. Trump shut down no businesses because he doesn't have the power to do it. Everybody well, knows that this was Democrat led. It was Democrats who shut down those businesses. And even hitting on the gun safety issue, the vast majority of gun crime doesn't involve somebody walking into a Walmart and committing a mass shooting. It, it involves gun crimes, drug crimes. You know what? Those people don't get their guns legally. They get them illegally. Like 70, 80 percent of those gun crimes are committed by people who obtain their weapons illegally. But instead of acknowledging that, Democrats want to make it harder for black and brown Americans to legally possess firearms so that they can defend themselves. There was a study that came out of Massachusetts just recently showing that over the past 25 years, their gun homicide rate increased by 111%, despite the fact that they have draconian gun laws that make it harder for responsible people to obtain the means by which they can defend themselves and their families. So the idea that these mass shootings are somehow indicative of most gun crime, that's not the case. If you want gun safety, allow responsible people to be able to defend themselves. Hmm. Well, we gotta leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. More rising right after this. The Supreme Court is set to hear arguments in a case that could derail the future of affirmative action in higher education. Harvard and the University of North Carolina are set to defend how they use race, among other criteria, in their admissions process. Conservative organization Students for Fair Admissions challenged the school's admitting procedures, contending that it violates their constitutional protections and federal law. They want the court to ban admissions offices from considering an applicant's race altogether. Here to discuss the ins and outs of this case and the arguments for what could be in store vis-a-vis -vis affirmative action in higher ed is Amisha Cross, a political strategist and attorney. Thank you for joining us again, Amisha. Good to see you. Always glad to be here. So what are your feelings about this case? Well, we knew that this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, affirmative action has come up in the courts now four times in the Supreme Court level, um, starting with 1979. And every time it has been upheld. The issue that I have but a right 25 now, year wasn't a 25 year expiration tag put on it in one of these cases. I remember Sandra Day O'Connor, I believe. Saying yes. That. Yes. And quite frankly, right now, seven states already don't use affirmative action. Yeah. And that has been upheld by state law. With that being said, I think that when we look at what's happening with higher ed, higher ed institutions, especially the more selective ones, are getting less diverse as the years go by. That's a problem because it's taking us back to a foregone era when you had individuals who had the acumen, who who had the intelligence, who had the intellectual capacity, who literally were not getting admitted solely based on their race. Affirmative action in and of itself has not been a what a lot of conservatives talk about in the sense of, oh, you're here because you're black or because you're brown. That it does not delineate itself from the entire package of a college admissions, um, of the college admissions packet. What is a problem here is that as we continue to look at the dismantling of diversity and equity and inclusion, this is something that goes down that path. And it's something that conservatives have been trying to push against for a while. It is also one that communications experts have not been able to talk about in a way that I think is helpful as we see our nation become more brown every day. But when you see the filings in this case, you see how the admissions offices at Harvard and other places, the way that, I mean, it's, it's the Asian students, part of this lawsuit is over Asian students, the way they talk about Asian students in terms of, well, they have like less personality, we're gonna have too many of them, we don't want that. We want representatives of sparse country. Like it's a very racialized lens when you look at how the admissions offices are operating that I think is 
just wildly offensive and, in fact, stereotypical and racist. And I'm, you know, happy to see them. I, they're not allowed to do that anymore. It would make me happy. Um, I, I do take your point that these institutions are getting less diverse, I, I think in large part because of other policies I would also like to get rid of, including legacy admissions, including the ridiculous sports based, I mean, this was the way in which all the celebrities smuggled their kids into these schools, right? Was saying, oh, my little darling is a water polo champion and just like Photoshopping their face onto a water polo player. Like all of that should end as well. But at the same time, I do happen to think that considering race is already banned under federal law and the Supreme Court should recognize that. What, what's your feeling about it, Bacha? I have sort of two main issues with it, and I'm not sure what I'm hoping for from the Supreme Court because I'm not sure it, it, what, what exactly it can address from these things. The first is what you just said, Robbie. There is a blatant and obvious discrimination against Asian Americans, and I find that to be so awful, like people who fought so hard to get to this country for a fair shot at the American dream and knowing that their kid is facing racial discrimination. We know that Asians have to score 50 and 100 points higher on these standardized tests to be considered. I mean, that that. That just it, it 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 just it's so gross. It feels really wrong. But I think Amisha, to your point, it's just not working. I mean, it's not working to elevate the brilliant, forgotten kids in Black and Hispanic communities and getting them that fair shot at what their God-given talents should be ensuring them. So it's it's not working. And I and I wonder why that is. And and then I guess I do have a third question, which is, um, I think it's very important that our elites are more diverse. I mean, don't get me wrong. That is a huge, huge priority um, for for a, a society that is based on equality the way ours pretends to be and wants to be. But it also sort of begs the question about what about everybody else? And I think that too often our conversations focus on how to get the few who are very brilliant into the ranks of the other brilliant people. And it sort of begs the question for me, what about everybody else? Yeah, I, so th this discussion is going on right now, and uh, I, I'm just following on Twitter. So Elena Kagan asked, well, as pointed out, um, there's no, there's there's been a gender-based neutrality because they don't they don't award points for men or for women, and the result of that has been more lately, white women, a lot more white women. women have specifically white women. We have to be real about this. White women have yeah. been the largest beneficiaries of affirmative action to date. But I guess I don't care. I, I guess I would say if women if, if women vastly outnumber men in higher education using a neutral test, then so be it. Like, I would not actually use policy to address that. I would say that would be because that would be discriminatory. I mean, giving a leg up to men because they're not doing as well for themselves as women, is not. that's not something I would do. So higher ed has a plethora of issues that we probably don't even have enough time to talk about. One of them is the innate elitism, um, be it that a lot of people are there on legacy, be it that a lot of people are there because their parents, quite frankly, could afford yeah. to send them. And affirmative action initially on its onset was to provide more of an open playing field, was to um, be in the vein of what we saw with um, with ending segregation in schools, was to be able to allow for individuals who normally would not have that access to walk through those doors. And in our most elite institutions, not only your Yales and Harvards of the world, but also in some of your state schools that are very strong. University of Michigan, for instance, has the strongest medical school in the country when it comes to undergraduate programs to get you into that, that medical school. With that being said, again, they don't even have the diverse numbers. No state in the country 
has the numbers in their school equaling the percentage of minorities in that state, particularly for black and brown students. And it is irrespective of whether that state is led by a Democrat or a conservative. We do have large factual issues related to college admissions. And I do think that this is something we need to look into. No affirmative action is not perfect. It never was perfect. But eradicating it entirely will only make a problem we already have a lot worse. Doesn't that argue for doing more um, to help and foster and nurture the educational environments of of um, minority students who are, are not placing in because they're under not because there's anything different about them but because they're in socioeconomic environments that leave them under underprepared they're in school systems that are not working as well we need to fix all of those problems rather than just say well it's okay if you're 50 points off you know we're 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 correcting for some kind of historical issue you're in anyway and then like those kids aren't are going to be less likely, not in all cases, but they're going to be less likely to succeed. No, I agree with you. Our K-12 system has 500,000 problems, and largely yeah. because schools are still funded by the local tax base. And at the end of the day, if you're somebody who grows up in an impoverished or under underprivileged community, you're basically shot in the foot from the start. And we just don't have the, that level of resources in those communities. It has never been for lack of acumen or lack of intelligence amongst certain groups of people. It has largely been because of the way our education system is set up for particular communities to fail from the preschool age on out. And that's what we continue to see. Hmm. I totally agree with you about that. And I think that, but I think to me, looking where we are now, I mean, I think affirmative action, when it was um, instantiated, I, it's so clear that it came from a place of, you know, good uh, good intentions. But when I look now, I think, Robbie, the point you raise where they're sort of trying to shortcut the problem. And the problem is that children are not getting equal access to a quality education. I agree with you, Amisha. I think they, a lot of them are set up to fail because of the communities they come from. But to shortchange that and say, we're going to select kids who are just never going to be able to compete with the kids of the already rich, already privileged, overwhelmingly white communities, I, I do think that there is a, a, a level at which by shortcutting the avenue to the equity that I think probably we all want, you're actually harming a lot of the, the intended beneficiaries. And you hear mm -hmm. these horrible stories about kids who are sort of from minority communities who were not prepared, not because of a, a lack of innate genius, which of course is equally distributed, but because they just were not raised the way these kids at elite schools are from third grade to be thinking about organic chemistry, right? And and they so they take out these loans, they go to these elite institutions like Harvard that want a more diverse um, crowd, and then they drop out with these like insane student loan, like just stories that break your yeah, heart. Yeah, that's a problem too. And of too. course, yeah. where does a kid? How does a kid then feel about themselves? You know, after that. So I think that trying to short shortcut the solution is potentially very harmful. And I, and I, again, would encourage anyone interested in this issue to look at the filing, what the admissions officers actually said about yeah. Asian students. And it is as Horrible. clear an example, in my view, of elite racism. It's just it's just it's racist thinking. There's no there's no Definitely. other way around it in terms of that. Now, what policy you have and what should change is a different issue. But I I was gobsmacked at how open they were about just stereotyping about a whole group of people. Um, all right, great discussion. We'll have more Rising right after this. Former President Barack Obama shared his thoughts on the current relationship between the U.S. federal government and Russia. The thing that I'm, I'm most concerned about is that lines of communication between uh, the White House and the Kremlin are probably... Um, 
as weak as they have been in a very long time. Yeah. Even in the uh, you know in, in some of the lowest points uh, of the Cold War, there was still sense a sense of the ability to pick up a phone and and work through uh, uh, diplomatic channels uh, to to send clear signals. And uh, a lot of that is broken down, and I don't think it's uh, the fault of our administration. I think that we're now dealing with a um, a type of Russian regime that is actually even more centralized. In response to that clip, journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted, this is the best of Obama, the side that is realist, who knows the limits of U.S. power and who always said the U.S. shouldn't confront Russia over Ukraine. What he's lamenting here, no U.S.-Russian channels, is due to Russiagate, which by design all but criminalized contacts. Now, audience members shouted at Obama during a speech he was giving at a rally for Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan over the weekend over past actions with Ukraine. Take a look. You overthrew the legitimate Ukraine in 2014. Tell us about your plans for nuclear war with Russia. Stop provoking nuclear war with Russia. You're going to kill us in nuclear war. Russia is the enemy. Russia is not the enemy. Stop getting us into nuclear war. There's more people that are going to get hurt if we go into nuclear war. Right now, we're on the verge of nuclear war thanks to, thanks to what you did in Ukraine in 2014. Why won't you tell the truth about what you did to overthrow Ukraine in 2014? Will you tell the truth? Yeah, but we're on the right verge of nuclear war. You, you, you care about the lives of your supporters? And we're joined by Amisha Cross. Good to see you, Amisha. Thanks for having me. So that was interesting, Obama being heckled there. But I, I actually think Obama, and, and Glenn Greenwald kind of pointed that out, was articulating a point along the lines of what the progressive Democrats were saying with that letter before they were forced to retract it, disavow it, and pretend they never had the idea to ask that maybe our support for Ukraine should be accompanied with a, a greater push for peace. So I appreciate Obama acknowledging it there. I mean, obviously, it's not he's not the one pushing us toward nuclear war. He is saying, it sounds like, that yes, of course, diplomacy with Russia should be part of this. And I, I think because he is a kind of savvier political operative than a lot of people in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. He's a very successful political operative. He probably gets that this like endless support for Ukraine without any harder lines or drawing any lines whatsoever is is going to eventually be a political loser for Democrats if it isn't already given, you know, the effect that's having on the economy and all, all those other things. What do you think, Amisha? Obama, you have more is the, Obama is one of the strongest orators the Democratic Party has ever seen. And I would argue also one of the best communicators broadly, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. But he's not saying anything there that the White House itself has not said multiple times. Um, we know that President Biden has no has no necessitous, no push to actually be involved militarily in 
in Ukraine and Russia relations at all. He has stated that multiple times. What we do see is Ukraine um, and their president, President Zelensky, has been elevating over and over again his ask of the United States. What is recognized is that this could cause friction with NATO. We understand that. And that the United States does not win in this at all. Um, I take issue with part of the clip where the uh, protester or instigator was hollering about Russia not being the problem. Russia is a problem, and Russia's been a problem for a long time. Vladimir Putin definitely wants to bring the band back together of sorts in terms of basically reinstituting the Soviet Union to its former strength. That is something that he is willing to die trying to make happen. That is an issue. There was also involvement in trying to sway the 2016 presidential election. We know that those things happened. But... None of this equates the United States getting involved militarily, nor um, supporting any type of direct action right now as it relates to um, as it relates to a potential nuclear action around Russia and Ukraine. It just does not We're make sense. We're paying for the defense, right? We're giving them tons and tons of money. Biden has not articulated any stand uh, point at which that will end. He has said as long as it takes, as much as it takes. So that's the difference that I, I think maybe Obama is slightly drawing here in saying that uh, is saying what the letter said from last week. Some Democrats thought this, and then they then again were, were forced to disavow ever even having this thought that we would give Ukraine money, but we would say at the same time, look, we're giving you this money, but we're not going to give you this money forever, and we really th we think there should be meetings. There need to be meetings between the U.S. and Russia, and Zelensky can be involved, of course, where we come to an end of this conflict without this going on any longer, which, again, it's costing us, it's hurting it our is. economy. And there's a line that I think Obama is trying to draw on the sand here, yeah, being the great orator he is, to say, at some point, this has to end, largely because, one, it's unpopular. But in addition to that, um, in in this Ukraine-Russia conflict, it could go on for decades. There is right. no very short or easy way out. And I think that to not be in something that looks like without boots on the ground, uh, Afghanistan, for instance, we don't want to have that level of presence. We don't want to have that level of cash flow for the next 20 years, possibly. I, that is a very valid argument. But we also have to look at the fact that it matters to uphold democracies. It matters to uphold democracies around the globe. It matters to not see them fall. So he has to juxtapose both of those things. I, I have to say, I don't, I, with all due respect to Glenn Greenwald, Obama was clearly blaming Russia for the fact that we don't have diplomatic relations with them. It was a totally anodyne statement like, oh, yeah, I wish we could have diplomacy, but we can't because the Russian government is more centralized now than before. So I didn't see that even chiming mm. with um, the, you know, the the the, the retracted uh, pro progressive uh, letter demanding more diplomacy. I, what I found so disturbing about the clip at the rally was that um, he, President Obama was heckled while talking about the attack on Paul Pelosi, which like all other Democrats, he blamed on right wing rhetoric. And when he started getting heckled by people who are probably progressives, he said, see, this is what I'm talking about. And then went on to say, we have a democracy. That means we have a process right now. I'm talking and then you'll have your turn as if protesting a former president is somehow inconsistent with democracy and somehow consistent with attacking an 82 year old man with a hammer. I mean, that was what I found really disturbing about this. And that, I think, is the Democrats' playbook again and again and again. Anything that challenges us, even in the most normal way possible, could be more normal than showing up as a protester at a former president's speech, a, a, a political speech. Anything that challenges us is a threat to democracy. Anything we do is a defense of democracy. Well, and it's interesting, the protests that 
figure, Democratic figures like Obama and AOC are getting now are very focused on the Ukraine issue, yes. um, which I think goes to show something that Democrats are, some Democrats are late to picking up on, which is that this issue, you know, everybody adding the Ukraine flag to their Twitter bio, okay, whatever, this is not an issue that actual voters, or actual voters are concerned about unlimited funding, I think, to Ukraine and what we're doing there. Well, Americans are just war-weary as well, and yeah. they see, yeah. most, most Americans can't point out Ukraine on a map, but they know that it's extremely far from the United <laughs> States, and that that really, they, you know, we, they don't see that as their issue, so yeah. there's that portion of it as well. Let's be 100% real here. Yeah, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's a wrong impulse necessarily. No, I don't, I mean, I don't think that's a bad thing, yeah. Because we'll have to, uh, I, I, not knowing where Ukraine is on a map is, I guess, a bad thing for, like, Jeopardy trivia or something, but it's, it's not, it, uh, you know, if the, if the U.S. knew where fewer countries were on the map, it might be, be better for their, for their yeah. populations in terms of what our foreign policy has been so often, which, you know, which is not to say that, um, that and that letter didn't say, and that, like, the, the Democrats aren't saying cease all funding immediately. And the Republicans, which are actually now have the more moderate view on this uh, holistically as a party, McCarthy has said, if he becomes House Speaker, not that all the aid is going to end immediately, but just that, you know, there might be a timetable for this ending, that we're not committed to doing this forever, and that there needs to be di diplomacy, which is the way all all. But Russia end. is not interested in diplomacy. There has been no sign from Russia that they are interested in doing anything outside of their own self-interest. Diplomacy is tough when you have a nation that literally has basically a political prisoner in WNBA star Brittany Griner and has refused to have any types of conversations and leveraging points in order to have this woman's release. I'm sorry, Russia does not care. They are out for Russia, and that is what we're seeing here. Well, but Zelensky initially was for having more diplomacy and then has, has kind of, I think, been goaded into this more, no, no, we would make, never make any concessions, whatever, so there's no point in having diplomacy, which then, yes, then the Russians are not going to come to the table. We need everyone to sit down and do something, I don't know, do the Musk deal or something akin to it, where <laughs> if, if people on the borders of Ukraine and Russia really, really want to or vote to do so in some kind of legitimate election, then okay, they should be part of Russia and then obviously not the the rest of the country, and then we're going to defend it, maybe not w within NATO, but there has to be a pledge not to ever do anything like this again. And we have to, you know, come up with something and, uh, and really, uh, which, yes, which is not to say that Russia is behaving appropriately or well in any of this. Again, they started it. It's their fault. But uh, for, our own, for our own economy's sake and everything else, um, I, I think we should. We're giving the money. We should say we should, it be, should be strings attached. Let's all sit down, try to fix this. More Rising right after this. Stay with us. In a now-deleted tweet, Elon Musk originally posted a conspiracy theory that is circulating about the attack on Paul Pelosi, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, sustained over the weekend. A man allegedly invaded the Speaker's home on Friday and assaulted Mr. Pelosi with a hammer. Musk, who is also Twitter's new owner, responded to Hillary Clinton's tweet of an L.A. Times story that linked the intruder David DePape to QAnon. So Hillary Clinton's tweet read, quote, the Republican Party and its mouthpieces now regularly spread hate and deranged conspiracy theories. It is shocking but not surprising that violence is the result. As citizens, we must hold them accountable for their words and the actions that follow. Musk's original tweet perpetuated claims about the nature of the attack, tweeting at Clinton, suggesting there might be more than meets the eye. This is the tweet that was scrapped. So the New York Times wrote a story about the billionaire's tweets about the attack, 
Um, and joining us now to discuss this is political commentator Amisha Cross. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So it's important to, you know, I think get this straight. So then, so Elon tweeted at Hillary a link to this, uh, uh, the, the, the not a reputable news site that was claimed, and then that they had a news article claiming that this assailant um, was like a, was like a gay hookup or something of that nature. Now this outlet has, and then the funny thing, this outlet in 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 the past has I think claimed that Hillary Clinton was killed and replaced with a body double. So it was funny that he was tweeting that at her. Look, I I, I defend Elon Musk when I agree with what he's doing, but he absolutely should not have done that. There is no reason to think. Um, that 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 theory has zero credibility. There's no like it is. It is. There's no reason to. We don't need to go to like elaborate. Like what was this guy doing here? When we see, have evidence that he's like a mentally ill person, the rambling nature of the the things he's expressed. Like it would be extraordinarily unlikely that he was a cra- like homeless crazy person with crazy thoughts, and then also was someone Paul Pelosi met for romance. Like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like why? This is this is. Uh conservative conspiracy theories run amok. These are the same folks who push Pizzagate. These are the same folks who believe that there's a cabal and child sex rings happening in random places across the country, specifically in D.C., led by the Democratic Party. These are individuals who are problematic. And I would not call the site that he um, that he quoted or retweeted uh, a, a news site, because it's not. It is a conspiracy theory site, and it knows its audience. Elon Musk is smarter than what he is showing on Twitter. And it's frustrating because right now, at a time when the nation should, quite frankly, be giving thoughts and prayers to the entire Pelosi family, because make no mistake, this was a very dangerous attack on a man who's 82 years old. He could have died. Um, Partisanship aside, that should be where our hearts lie at this point. There has been an uptick in the danger that is being placed on the families of individuals who happen to be of of the Democratic background or of the Democratic Party for quite some time since the disillusionment of... uh, former President Trump's ideas of winning the 2020 election. That is true. We saw it grow tremendously after January 6th, and these death threats are happening. People are showing up where they're not supposed to be at these folks' personal homes with weapons. This is a thing. And it's not just Nancy Pelosi who's experiencing it. We've also seen heightened calls for security from members of the squad, um, AOC, Ayanna Presley, and others. This is a scary place to be. And this this root of violence, this sickening thing that seems to be happening in our culture, um, the increasing partisanship across America that somehow is creating avenues for people to push towards literally creating an environment of death and destruction for individuals and their families who have taken on the mantle of simply serving their country is something none of us should condone. Somebody showed up at Brett Kavanaugh's house, right? Someone attacked. And I called that out as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I guess I, I disagree, or I take umbrage at the idea that there's this unique uh, and mounting appetite for, for or January sixth protesters violence. came there and hollered out Pelosi. We're looking for Pelosi. The same people who said that they wanted to rape and murder AOC. That is something that is very real. And I think that we would be remiss if we sat here and denied that these people are in actual literal danger because there are individuals across this country who are crazy enough to act on those things. What do you think, Bacha? Um. Well, getting back to Elon Musk, I will say that um, once I saw him tweet the link, 
I did have that thought of, you know, as a journalist, like, oh, I guess this is now in the mainstream, right? Before mm-hmm. it was like, okay, we could talk like conspiratorially, like, oh, this doesn't add up, that doesn't add up. There was a, a recording of the um, 911 phone call, not of, of Paul Pelosi, but of the dispatcher claiming that Paul Pelosi knew the name of the attacker and that he had called him a friend. The the the, the, the uh, San Francisco police are now denying that, that that is that he knew him. Um, but, you know, there was stuff kind of floating around and you would think like, okay, I want you know what what actually happened but you know it, it was in the realm of conspiracy theory you know crazy far right in but i have to admit when i saw elon musk who has what 110 million followers on twitter tweet the link my first thought was oh i guess this is now in the mainstream and you know which is not to say that you know he shouldn't have been allowed to tweet it which i don't know whether he should have or shouldn't have tweeted it probably not because it was like a really you know this site is 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 not reputable but um that impact of when somebody has that big of a following what they say almost de facto becomes part of the mainstream conversation. Um, You know, that's something that I think people need to be aware of when they're at that level. I think the same is true of big influencers on the left. Like, you have to be careful about what you say because it's no longer just fun and games. Like, Mm -hmm. dude, you own the platform now. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's just no longer fun and games. And and I think he needs to to step up his game and be a bit more careful. Well, especially because conservatives often say, can't we wait for all the facts in like a mass shooting or something where... You know, did he get the gun illegal? We want to know details before we say, would any of the policies you're proposing actually have done anything? Or, or, you know, even in you know, police shootings, when there's a police shooting of a suspect, I mean, sometimes it is legitimate. We want to, what does the body cam footage show? So that is a good impulse to say, well, let's wait till we know more. Uh, that was not what was being done here. It was, it was just <laughs> wild speculation based on, well, I heard maybe in the 911 call he said he was his friend. Maybe he would have said he was his friend because he was in the background and he didn't want to get hit with a hammer. I mean, like, there are all sorts of, you know, more reasonable explanations. And then just the fact that this clearly is, Obviously, we need to know more about this person's background, but we already have overwhelming evidence to suggest that this person has serious mental health problems and, like, thought, imagined that fairies were chasing him, um, like actual fa- the, the, the uh, fictional creature, um, which, which <laughs> then suggests an obvious... Um, uh, Possible addiction issues. Like, like, what, other like what was on going on here becomes pretty obvious. Um, and you don't need to like go looking for like really really out there explanations. So so the the impulse to wait and then ju- like accept the the thing that makes sense is a good impulse. One that often serves conservatives who are who are you know pushing when when mainstream people jump to you know jump to conclusions as they often do. Um, but but that is a good impulse that was not not put to put to good use here. And obviously, I think, you know, going back to what you're saying earlier, Misha, absolutely, the, there's irresponsible um, uh, extremist rhetoric going on right now. I think it would be to the country's absolute benefit to turn down some of that, extre- no matter who is doing it, um, because, yes, there will, you know, danger, even if it's just a small number of you know, very unstable people who hear something and then they're, they're going to do it. But I, but I, I think that's it's it's hard because there also politi- political rhetoric has just been overheated really since the dawn of time, 
and uh, and and you but have to have robust arguments. But we haven't seen things and, like threats on Governor Whitmer's life. Like we haven't seen well, people who want like to kidnap individuals and then blow up bridges and go about and I don't agree with that. There's been political violence. I don't think there's yes, more there's political, political violence, violence now than historically. We, we've had presidents who've been assassinated. Yeah. We've had civil rights leaders who've been assassinated. There's yeah. been political violence throughout our nation's history. But the vitriol that we're seeing now, in a large part, is spread by these conspiracy theories and the rise of social media in terms of it being the behemoth and people not actually investigating what they're what they're reading, but just going back and utilizing that to create their own echo chambers of understanding and then be vitriolic and utilize that vitriolism to actually commit violence. That is something that is extremely scary. And I think that both parties need to really work harder at trying to reel it in because it's happening to Democrats right now. In the next few years, it, Republicans could be the top targets. Who knows? At the end of the day, we need to reel this in. It's okay to disagree. That's what we are, you know, that's what this nation is bred on. A lot of disagreement and a lot of people from multiple sides of the partisan spectrum. But we're not a country that is, should ever be okay with threats to our humanity, with threats to our elected leaders. I think it should be reeled in because it's just unhealthy for society, not because I'm actually concerned about widespread political violence, but... Either way, yes, let's bring, it, let's bring it down a notch. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow, I'll be back with Brianna Joy Gray, and we'll discuss all the important news of the day. It was so wonderful having Bacha and Amisha with us today. Thanks so much. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, now available anywhere that podcasts are available. We're available on Roku. Uh, just lots of good things happening in general. Lots of ways to consume Rising, which is wonderful. And I'll see you all tomorrow. Take care.